Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Uh, Today is the second week of a series we started called You Are Not Your Own. And our premise for this series is that there is a message in our culture that says that we belong to ourselves, that we are our own, and therefore it is up to us to find our own meaning and purpose in life, and that as freeing as that message might sound, it is not actually true, nor is it helpful. And instead... The message of Jesus tells us that we, in fact, belong to God. And the fact that Jesus has died and risen from the dead for us is the thing that gives our lives meaning and purpose. And when those truths are the things that set the agenda for our lives, we find true flourishing. Because God created us, and he desires us to live in a relationship with him. And we started this series last week by looking at uh, the passage of Scripture where this phrase, you are not your own, actually comes from. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul teaches that instead of the thinking present among the Christians in Corinth, that they belong to themselves and therefore they are free to do whatever they want with their bodies, that instead they belong to God. And so they are to use every part of who they are for God's glory. And over the rest of this series, we're going to be taking this idea uh, that we are not our own and apply it to various areas of our lives. And today, our topic is money. And you might hear that and think, what are you talking about? My hard-earned money is mine. Or you might think, well, this is just what I've always suspected. The church is just after my wallet. And if you are having those thoughts right now, let me try to alleviate your concerns And say that first off, everything you have is a gift from God to begin with. If we believe that God created all things, that he owns all things, that means that he entrusts whatever we have to us uh, to use for his glory as we partner with him in caring for his creation. You were born with talents and gifts and abilities that have made you good at whatever it is that you are good at, and I am sure that you have honed those skills over the years to be better at them, and you have used them maybe to make money for yourselves, and that is a wonderful thing. But God is the one that created you with them and has enabled you to use them, has given you opportunities so that you might be able to use them. So, uh, we shouldn't be shy about saying our money is not our own. In fact, it belongs to God, just like everything else. But if that premise still has you a little concerned, let me also say God desires so much more from you than your money. The situation's far worse than you might think it might be. Uh, Jesus speaks about money, he speaks about it quite a bit, but it's not because he's just worried about our bank accounts. He speaks about it because he's interested in us being a part of his kingdom. And he knows that money can often keep us from that. And so this sermon is not going to require you to write a check before you can leave today. But I do hope it can help us view our money, our stuff, our possessions in the same way that God views it. So that we can step into the life God wants us to have. Above all else, if you are nothing else from me this morning, I hope that you can give God your wealth. He can give you something more. Because Jesus is interested in our wealth to the extent that it gets in the way of us having life with him. His goal is not just for us to be destitute. A friend of mine likes to say, and I think he's right, Jesus isn't concerned about you having stuff. He's concerned about your stuff having you. 
And we're going to look at Mark chapter 10 today where Jesus sees someone whose stuff has them. And Jesus is going to call them to let it go so that they can have something more. And this man is initially interested in following Jesus, but when he hears this from Jesus, it ultimately causes him to walk away because of what Jesus says. And at first glance, this story might sound like Jesus is being harsh, but I think if we look closely, we get a little comment from Mark right in the middle of this story that changes our perspective. And so let's start looking at this story, uh, starting with Mark 10 at verse 17. It says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, uh, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Uh, Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go. Go. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each tell us about this story, but they each highlight different things for us as they tell it. Matthew tells us that it's a young man that comes to Jesus. Luke calls him a ruler, which doesn't really tell us a lot, but communicates he has some form of authority. Mark just says he is a man. But putting all of these accounts together, we see this is someone who has a lot going for them and who is genuinely interested in following Jesus. There are plenty of people Jesus has interactions with across the Gospels that come to him with questions, and more often than not, those people come to Jesus with questions that have an agenda behind them, trying to trap Jesus in his words or get him in trouble with someone or something like that. This doesn't appear to be one of those situations. He comes to Jesus. He calls him good teacher. He asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? By all accounts, this man would seem to be an ideal candidate to join Jesus' followers. I mean, he has the humility to come up and bow before Jesus. He asks this question that is the most important question anyone could ask. He has wealth and status, which would communicate to everyone around him uh, that, that he has lived a life that is honoring of God, and God has blessed him as a result of it. The rest of this crowd might be expecting Jesus to just be overjoyed that someone like this is interested in following him. But Jesus as he so often does, does not react in the way we might expect. He, he stops at that word, good. Now, good is used to mean all sorts of things. We say God is good. We say the meal was good. The show I've been watching is good. And I can't tell you for certain all the things going around this man's head as he calls Jesus a good teacher. But it makes Jesus pause. And he responds to his question with a question of his own in verse 18. He says, why do you call me good? Because Uh, No one is good except God alone. As much as we might use the term good, God is the only one who can truly fulfill everything that it means. He's perfect in all his ways. He always does what is right. He has no imperfections. And I don't know what all is in this man's head as he calls Jesus a good teacher, but Jesus wants to make it clear that he's saying more than he realizes. 
Because the only way someone could truly be called good teacher is if they come from God or if they are God in the flesh. And if that is what this man thinks when he calls Jesus good teacher, then he's moving in the right direction. But if he means something else, he might run the risk of missing out on Jesus altogether. Because if Jesus is a good teacher, then he is the only one who can answer this question of how to inherit eternal life. Only he can fully reveal what it means to be a part of God's people. So Jesus starts answering this question in the standard ways. He says, keep God's law. He starts walking through the Ten Commandments. Yet if you notice, uh, he doesn't start with the first commandment. He starts with the second half of the Ten Commandments. He doesn't even go in the right order. And there may be all sorts of reasons why he does this, but it at least seems to be the case that these are the commands that tend to be focused on other people, and these tend to be the commands that you can really tell if someone has broken them. You may know that the Ten Commandments break into two halves. The first half of the Ten Commandments is really concerned with how you relate to God, and the second half of the Ten Commandments really focus on how you relate to one another. And all the commands Jesus lists here are out of that second Half And maybe he was planning on getting around to that first half and just got cut off before he could get there. But he starts with these that relate to how we care for one another and the ones that can be verified pretty easily if they've been broken. I mean, it might be tricky for another person to tell whether or not you violated the first commandment and worshipped another god or had an, another god first in your heart before the one true god. It's a little easier to verify if you've stolen from someone. Jesus walks through these commands, and the man is not satisfied, apparently. He says to Jesus, I mean, I've done all that. I've kept the commands everyone knows you're supposed to keep, and I'm still missing something. He is as righteous, he is righteous, as long as we are defining righteousness in the standards of his day. Yet he's looking for more from Jesus. And Mark tells us that Jesus looks at this man and loves him. And maybe I'm overstating my case, but I think this entire passage hinges around that detail. Jesus is about to say something difficult to hear, but we won't understand it properly until we see that it is coming from a place of love. Because sometimes love requires you to say or do difficult things. I mean, most people who have parents or have been parents know this. Sometimes you have to tell your kids no Because what they think is good for them will actually hurt them. Kids, teenagers, just as a brief infomercial, sometimes your parents don't do what you want them to do, and it's because they love you. So just file that away for when it is needed later. Sometimes you have to take your kid to the doctor so they can get a shot, and they don't understand how vaccinations work, and you can't explain it, so they look at you like you're a monster as you hold them down and a needle goes into their arm. Love requires seeking the good of the one we love which means that sometimes what is good for them does not seem good from their perspective, and that is exactly what is happening here. Jesus loves this man that has come to him, which means that as harsh as what he is about to say sounds, it is said in love because Jesus knows what is best for this man, and he wants him to have life. So Jesus says, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Only that will put a stop to this ache he feels in his soul. 
And if he does that, then there will be nothing in the way of his full-fledged pursuit of Jesus. And then he can follow Jesus, experience the life he seeks, but on hearing this, his face falls. His face falls as if he's just been told that there's been an accident involving a loved one. His face falls as if the doctor has just walked in to tell him the tests have come back positive. His face falls, and without another word, he walks away sad because he had great wealth. By all accounts, this man had everything going for, the, for him, yet he felt like there might be something missing, and he's just discovered the only way to get what he is missing is to let go of what he thinks is a sign that life is going well for him. And he goes away sad because he has great wealth, and he is not about to give that up for the sake of Jesus. And as Jesus and the rest of this crowd watch him leave, Jesus begins to explain to them what they have just witnessed and what it means for them. And as he teaches, and as his disciples respond to him, I think we start to catch a glimpse in how we respond as well. Picking up at verse 23, it says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God. All things are possible with God. We have to notice here what Jesus does and does not say. He says twice in those verses we just read that it is difficult for the rich to enter his kingdom. He says it is as difficult as trying to shove a camel through the eye of a needle. But in between those two proclamations, he says in the middle a more general statement in verse 24, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. This is not just a teaching for people who are rich or rich from our perspective. And the disciples pick up on that. They're in verse 26. After Jesus says all of this, they don't respond with, well, boy, I'm glad I'm not rich then, because then I'd have to listen to what you're saying, Jesus. No, their reaction is to say, well, then who then can be saved? In their line of thinking, wealth showed God's blessing. And if Jesus is saying it is difficult for the rich to get into his kingdom, it must be even more difficult for anyone else. And yet Jesus makes it clear, nothing's impossible for God. Therefore, it's possible for the rich or anyone else to enter his kingdom. But it is difficult. Because the greater wealth someone has, the easier it is to trust in that for hope and security than it is to trust in Jesus. And this is not a hard and fast rule. It is possible to be wealthy and not greedy, just like how it is possible to be greedy even though you don't have anything to be greedy about. But generally, the more we have, the more likely we are to assume that we do not need God. And that doesn't absolutely mean it is an either-or of wealth or God, but it does mean we have to be careful because wealth can be like a fire, A fire in your house in the middle of winter is a great thing, assuming that that fire is in your fireplace. If if this pulpit bursts into flames right now, we would have a crisis on our hands. I hope it doesn't, because that would be scary. But we, we would be in trouble because the fire would not be in the place that it was supposed to be in. And 
Wealth can be a good thing to be used for the glory of God, but it can also get in the way of our trust in God when we take it out of the context it was supposed to thrive within. And that is what Jesus is saying here. He does not tell this man to give up his wealth because Jesus is opposed to all wealth, but because he knows that wealth is the, is the thing standing between this man and the life he's looking for. So telling him to get rid of it all might sound drastic, and I guess it is. It's drastic like yelling at someone who's about to walk out into oncoming traffic. It's the thing that will destroy this man if it goes unchecked, and so Jesus tells him to get rid of it, and he is unwilling to do so. So this passage is about wealth, but more than that, it is about where we find our meaning. Because this man seems to have found his meaning through his wealth or his status or his obedience to God's commands when true meaning is only found through life with God. And if that is true, then the things this man has been trusting in, just like anything we might trust in, no longer help us but hurt us. And so we need them to be stripped away. So again, this is not about money. It is about so much more. It is about whatever it might be that gets in the way of our life with God. And for many of us, that could very easily be our money, but it can also be our achievements. It can be how we're perceived by others. It can be our house or what's in the driveway. It can be where we went on vacation, how many degrees are on the wall, who we're romantically involved with. It can be anything we might point to and say, I know my life matters because I have this. And no matter what that might be for you, Jesus says, give it up. Not because it's evil, but because apart from him, it will not give you meaning. And upon hearing that news, we may find it hard to take. And we might want to walk away. And if that's our reaction, we need to keep reading to the end of the passage to see what is waiting for us on the other side of giving up whatever it is we might be holding on to instead of Jesus. Picking up in verse 28, Peter speaks up, says to Jesus, we, We've left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. On either side of the passage we're looking at this morning, Mark will tell us a story where the disciples do not understand Jesus, which tends to be a recurring theme throughout the Gospel of Mark. But right here, at the end of this passage, they start to put some things together because they've done exactly what Jesus has commanded this rich rich man to do. Uh, Peter, the one that speaks up, and his brother Andrew, their friends James and John, they had a family fishing business they each had separately that they had walked away from in order to follow Jesus. Matthew left his lucrative career as a tax collector to become Jesus' disciple. All 12 of them have interrupted their life for the sake of Jesus, just as Jesus has just asked this man to do. So if nothing else, that means that while what Jesus is saying here is difficult to hear, And maybe even more difficult to practice, it is not impossible. Because the disciples have done what Jesus commanded. And therefore, Jesus promises them that they will receive life in his kingdom. And that is what is waiting for us on the other side of whatever it is that might get in the way of our trust in Jesus. Jesus has more in store for us. And we have to be careful when we say that. 
if you remember, my sermon in a sentence this morning was give God your wealth so he can give you something more. And the first draft of that statement, to take you behind the curtain, I guess, was give God your wealth so he can give you more. And while I always try to be efficient as, and as brief as possible uh, in my sermon writing, and not good at that most of the time, um, I felt like that word something needed to be added into that statement. Because if not, give God your wealth so he can give you more sounds like a Ponzi scheme, where if I give God money, he is required to pay me back even more than I put in to begin with. And that is not the point Jesus is making here or anywhere else. Life with God says that if you trust in him, he will provide for you what you are trying to find in bits and pieces elsewhere, whether it's your wealth or something else. He doesn't say give up your, if you give up your riches, he will give back more than you had before. He says if you trust in me, you will realize you don't need your riches because I will provide everything you need. We will not give up anything for the sake of Christ that we do not receive back exponentially more in his kingdom. And I'm willing to say that that is true because I have experienced it. The first Thanksgiving I was here, I decided at the last minute I wasn't going to go back to see my family over Thanksgiving because we were concerned about COVID cases spiking and I was worried about exposing myself or family members. And when I made that decision, there was some grief attached to it that I wasn't going to be able to see friends and family and things. But there was another part of me being the introvert that I am was like, now I get a week at home with nothing to do and I'm just going to lay on the couch and it's going to be incredible. And, and uh, instead of that, some of the families here that I had already spent time around because of church activities and so we felt like we could get together safely, they drug me out of my apartment to their homes for Thanksgiving And I was grateful for the invitation at the time, but it wasn't until I was driving home that night I remembered passages like this. And I realized that that is exactly what Jesus was talking about. Things like that are what Jesus is talking about when he says we will not give up anything for his sake that we do not receive back. It might not be exactly what we expected or what we want, but it will be abundant life in his kingdom I never would have moved to this state if it were not for the gospel. And sure, that means there are friends and family I do not see as often as I could if I was in a different line of work, I imagine. But because of the message of Jesus, that has been worth it. And I've received far more friends and family from you all and so many more than I ever could have imagined. And I don't say that like I'm some sort of hero who has sacrificed more than anyone else. I'm just the guy with the microphone right now. We could go around this room and so many of you could tell stories about sacrificing for the kingdom so much more than I have and and what that has looked like and the blessing you've received back. But that is the blessing that comes within the hope of the gospel. It is not a promise that life will always be perfect. Jesus makes that clear. If you notice as he's running through all the things you receive as a part of his kingdom. He includes persecution in the midst of that. So whatever he's telling us, he's not just telling us life is is incredible from the moment you say yes to following him. But what he is saying is that life in the kingdom, while it's not always easy and glamorous, it is absolutely worth it because it is the life God created us to live. So this rich man walks away. Jesus 
responds to that by teaching. The disciples respond to him, and that leaves us to respond as well. Because Jesus makes the same call to us to get rid of whatever it is that might get in the way of our life with him. And that doesn't mean we are required to be destitute, although it probably does mean that some or all of us would look more like Jesus if we lived on less than we do currently. I came across a commentator this week that said the, made the statement that, that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. If our response to this passage is, well, boy, I'm glad I'm not rich because then I'd have to do what this guy says or what Jesus told this guy to do, that might be a sign that we need to listen to this passage again. But no matter what it looks like, the most important thing we could ever take hold of is the kingdom of God, which means that along the way there will be things we need to let go of and, and doing that will look different for each and every one of us, but that does not mean we shouldn't do it. Because when we do, as painful as it might seem, what is waiting for us on the other side is life in God's kingdom. And if that sounds like too much to do, too much to take in, we we should look again at the one who is telling us this. Because he is the one who looks at us and loves us. Just like he does in this story. He's not telling us to let go of our wealth because it's bad to have wealth. He tells us to let go of our wealth because if we are looking For it to give us life, we're missing out on the life he desires for us. A life that is better than wealth could ever hope to bring us. He is like a parent that loves their child, and because he loves their child, he won't let them eat ice cream right before dinner. He looks at us and he loves us. He tells us hard truths that will bring us into life that is richer and fuller than we could ever imagine if we do what he says. So I'm not asking you for your money. I'm asking you to listen to Jesus and to do what he says. I'm asking you to get rid of whatever it is that prevents you from a deeper life in God's kingdom. And if you don't know what that looks like, ask God. Ask those who know, your, know you best because my guess is they will have some suggestions. And that might be something big, it might be something small. But if we are letting go of it for the sake of Jesus, it is worth it. As dumb as it might sound, I am fully aware of how pathetic this sounds, but there have been times in my life where my happiness has been mainly dependent upon whether or not the St. Louis Cardinals had won their game the night before. And while there's nothing wrong with caring about a sports team, at the end of the day, no member of the St. Louis Cardinals knows that I exist, much less would they die for me. And if that's where I'm trying to find my meaning, I'm not going to find very much, especially this year. But that's a, that's a different sermon. And that's far from the only example in my life. And we could go around this room and come up with all sorts of things. My guess is that for more than us than we would care to admit, it starts right where this passage starts, with our finances. And if you're wanting me to give you a number right now for how much you have to give, I think that's the wrong question. I don't think it's a matter of an amount. I think it's a matter of our hearts. And so if you find yourself looking for comfort because you have money in the accounts, it might be worth evaluating if you could or should live on less and give more, whether that's here or elsewhere. Not for our sake, but as a statement of your own faith that God's provision is greater than what is in our accounts. And if you need help working out what this means for you in any way, stop by the Welcome Center before you leave today. We would be glad to talk with you, to pray with you, to connect you with some resources that might be helpful. 
But above all else, may we all step more deeply into life in God's kingdom. Let's pray. God, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins, to raise from the dead so that we might have life in your kingdom. God, forgive us for when we reject that, walk away from that, think that it's not enough, look for something else, whatever it might be. God, forgive us for when we look elsewhere to find what only you can give us. God, thank you for the life you have come to offer us that we didn't deserve. Help us to take hold of that life fully, no matter what that looks like for us as we let go of our pride, our ego, our idols, whatever it is, so that we can take hold of you. Give us wisdom to know what we, how we, what we should do in response. Give us the boldness to respond as you would call us to do. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.